Welcome to the Unsuccess Podcast, a podcast where we talk about ministry and vocation here in Portland, Oregon. I'm David Libby. And I'm Josh Hawk. And today we got a very special guest, an author that I've followed and a writer online that I've followed for years that I uh, really respect, a lady named D.L. Mayfield. Thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks. Um, you go by... You go by Danielle in yeah. real life? Yes, cool. Danielle. Cool. Um, so we'll, we'll call you Danielle. Um, Danielle, can you talk to us a little bit about uh, your early life and um, and where where you came from and how you uh, some of the some of the thoughts you had about what following God meant um, to you and what you thought fo- uh, following God should look like? Yeah. So I grew up a pastor's kid and I wanted to be a missionary from age six, actually. Mm. I remember that's the what I said I wanted to be and I never <laughs> let that go. Um, I was actually on like homecoming court as a senior in high school. I went to a very small school in Central Oregon and um, I had I had them announce that I was going to be a missionary to Russia and my parents, that was like the first they'd heard of that. So anyways, (laughs) wow. Yeah. I was very driven from a young age and, you know, looking back, I think there's a couple of reasons for that. One is that I really wanted to follow God and I really wanted God to love me and be proud of me. And so I grew up on these missionary biographies of these people that seemed larger than life and amazing and worthy of, you know, adoration and veneration. And so I think that's what I wanted. And, and two, I came from a background where that's really one of the few pathways for women um, who wanted to be in leadership. And I would never have said I wanted to be in leadership, but looking back, I was very strong-willed and I still am very strong-willed and I have a very uh, deep sense of vocation. And so I think that might be another reason why I was drawn to uh, these missionary stories and seeing myself in them. Um, and so one thing that happened, um, my life took a few twists and turns, but the biggest one happened when I was uh, here in Portland going to Multnomah Bible College, and I was 19 and taking all these classes to be a missionary when I started volunteering with uh, recently arrived Somali Bantu refugees through Catholic Charities, and I just thought, great, I can practice you know, before I go out and do the real thing, which is, in retrospect, a really terrible way to view uh, sure. Interacting with yeah. real people. So sure. let's just say that. Um, and then after I started to get embedded in their lives, um, just all my easy narratives came crashing to the ground and the easy narratives I had about conversion. Right. So uh, just say this one prayer and you'll be saved or believe this one intellectual idea about Jesus and you'll be saved. Um the refugees I was partnered with were some of the least successfully acclimated refugees that the U.S. has ever resettled. So this is not a normal situation, but um, they were actually a completely non-literate society, so they couldn't read or write in their own language. Um, they were rural. They were tribal. They were um, Muslim. They just had so many barriers to being able to become a Christian the way I had been trained in Bible college, you had to become a Christian. And so I quickly had to realize this isn't going to be happening anytime soon, right? There's so many things we'd have to do before then. So now what does it mean for me to be in relationship with them if I can't convert them right away? And that is when I think my my journey began. And they also introduced me to this idea I had, I think even of America, but Portland in particular of... Um, how easy it should be to thrive in Portland. And again, due to all these barriers um, that they had, they were not thriving and Portland was not an easy place for them. And I uh, began to see what it was like to be poor in America. And it was really heartbreaking. Well, tell us some about that. Uh, if you can, if you can, without like getting yourself in trouble or anything, I, I have a feeling you don't care about that, but, uh, <laughs> but maybe, I don't know. Uh, but tell us some about, uh, those, those hardships. Cause Portland does seem like the kind of city where it should be easy to, live no matter who you are or your background or whatever. So um, tell us some about those hardships. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm speaking as, you know, an outside observer, so I don't even know the depths, right, of how yeah. hard it can be. But again, just um, the first community I was working with, so they were non-literate, right? They were visibly Muslim, especially the women wearing headscarves. They are black. They are African. They um, just operate in a different continuum as far as emphasis on relationship and not uh, programs or appointments. And so, again, there's just all these ways where they didn't fit in. And just even starting to realize... Um, the debt people were in when they came to the U.S. I remember all these bills were piling up on uh, like the table of the one family I was working with, and I finally just started to open them and read them because they couldn't read and they didn't know what they said. And um, they actually owed the U.S. government for their flights over from Kenya, and so they were already like thousands and thousands of dollars in debt. And the U.S. resettlement agency you know, paid for the rent for eight months, paid for assistance for eight months, but they didn't pay back that debt. And after I started working with them for a few months, I thought eight months, like right. <laughs> they yeah. barely could say it is rainy outside. You know, like that's where we were at at that point. And so that was my really rude awakening to the refugee resettlement program was never um, supposed to be for people in poverty and people um from trauma quite like these communities that we have actually been resettling in recent years. So in recent years, the refugee resettlement program has focused on human rights abuses and violations and welcoming those communities into the U S but our agencies aren't set up to support the amount of care and um, support that they need. So if that makes any sense, eight months used to be enough, I think for certain groups and it's, it's not enough Mm -hmm. certain groups, but if, uh, if like some of the refugees that, you've uh, come alongside some of those folks are, it sounds like basically screwed, right? Like, I mean, it's hard not to feel like that. So feels like that. So, yeah. w- so one thing, um, a few years into relationship, uh, one young man told me, he just said, you know, a lot of the kids I know, they were born in refugee camps, so they don't even remember like the civil war in Somalia, right? They weren't born there. They were born in Kenya where the families had you know, fled the violence. They're born in Kenya and they just waited there for like a decade to try and find any country to accept them. And so he said, you know, life in the camps in Kenya was very, very hard, right? You like every day you got your one allotment of food um, that you had to stay in line and get or whatever. It was just kind of subsistence living. And he said, but here in America, it's also really, really hard. Like you have to find several jobs to work in order to pay for all the bills. So there's so many more bills here. And right. so just to hear him be like, and I was like, okay, well, which one's better? I thinking he would say, you know, the United States, because that's what I had been told my whole life. And he just said, both of them are really hard, mm. which I think was his like, trying not to shame me way of saying like, I almost felt like he was saying this was worse, honestly, mm. um, because of all the differences and all the newness and not fitting in. And, you know, I now live uh, in a different part of Portland. So just to kind of quickly recap my story, I I was hanging out with these refugee communities for so long. um, They eventually all moved to this low-income housing on like 28th and Powell in inner Southeast Portland. And when they built new low-income housing right across the street, the managers were like, you should just move in. Like you're here all the time. I was like, okay, that might Mm -hmm. cut down on some community. Like it was never in my radar to be intentional or, you know, like move in on purpose, but that's what ended up happening. And I, I had gotten married at that point. And so I kind of drug my husband <laughs> with me into this chaotic situation. Um, we lived there for a few years and then we moved away to Minneapolis. And when we moved back, um, due to rising rents, which I know you guys have talked about on this podcast, gentrification in Portland is a huge issue. Um, you know, a lot of refugee and immigrant populations are now kind of living on the outskirts, right? And so here in Rockwood is where a lot of people have um, found themselves. And this is where up until, you know, 2016, recently arrived refugees were getting resettled out here. It's kind of the only place resettlement agencies could afford to resettle people. So we moved back. We're like, there's only one spot we can go to and it's in Rockwood. So that's why we're here. But people still face so many challenges. Like Rockwood has a lot of racial tension. Mm -hmm. And so some of my friends who wear the hijab have been spat on by um, like men driving cars around. There's, Mm. you know, cars around here with a Confederate flag on them. Um, Lots of houses have signs that say 
we don't call 911 with the huge pictures of guns. And so it's a fascinating and um, really interesting place to try and love all your neighbors because um, some of my neighbors wish that my other neighbors didn't exist. And that's really hard. Mm. Yeah, that's, uh, that's, I think, another um, maybe misconception about Portland. I don't, I don't know why, but from an outside perspective, when, when people ask me about Portland, uh, friends of mine, they, they assume that, um, everyone just accepts everyone. (laughs) I I don't, I don't know why they get that assumption. I'm I'm like, it's, it's a city, you know, there's, there's people of all kinds here, but there are Republicans and Democrats both in our city too. Can you believe it? Right. (laughs) Um, so Danielle, your book is, um, entitled assimilate or go home Mm -hmm. and oh, that we definitely the, the missions mentality for a number of years, you know, early on for sure was, was that way. I think the church definitely has probably been that way. Oh shoot. I think probably since, since Christ, um, and even Jewish culture as well is like, that was that, that first century was like, Hey, no, you guys actually, you Gentiles have to assimilate and become like Mm -hmm. us, you know? Um, and, and so we have a lot of, there's a lot of doctrine and theology that comes out of that. Um, but what, oh, what has been your experience and kind of the, the shifting, I guess, for you, um, to realize, wow, the point is not to make these other people who don't look like me, um, not to make them like me, but maybe it's more of like me assimilating into their culture or like stepping into their shoes. Um, and, and how has that impacted uh, maybe some of your, your evangelical paradigms, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. Do you mean like evangelical culture or like evangelism? Yeah. Methods. Yeah. <laughs> Both. Yep. <laughs> okay. Well, it's funny because I have a few different answers for this. And one is that I think my title is kind of intense and has a few different layers. One is that that's literally what my refugee friends have been told, told you yeah. know, in no uncertain terms. If you can't be like us, please go back home. Mm-hmm. Which the sad thing for a refugee is they can't. They wish they could. Right? They aren't here to be a part of the American dream. Like their world has ended and it's never coming back and they have to kind of create something new out of the apocalypse that has happened to them. Right. Right. And I don't, I, I'm not trying to cut in. I don't think we can overstate that enough. I have (laughs) many conversations with people, uh, where they think refugees are just coming here Mm -hmm. looking for a better life. Hmm. Yeah. Instead of, fleeing the literal hells that they've mm-hmm. yeah. you know that yeah. that they've been a part of so no, sorry to thank you interrupt. I appreciate That's, that it's important yes. to make that point point. and if they could sit you know with some of my friends one thing that's really hard is, you know, family is so important to a lot of yeah. Muslim cultures and that's mostly who I am in relationship with and you know, their entire families don't get to come right and now even due to certain travel bans um, and just the instability of traveling, you know, you have to live in the U S for five years before you can take your citizenship test. And so, um, that applies for refugees too. So they couldn't fly back to visit family members in any part of the country, any, any part of the world. And so there's just so much sadness about, um, families being broken up and yeah, people wish they were in their home countries for sure. I can, I can vouch for that, but I think, being, and even I love, I don't love, but I really resonated with what you just said. Like they escaped literal hell. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's actually a great segue for something that, again, I think has been a part of my journey is this growing up in evangelicalism, kind of having this very shallow understanding of uh, what the gospel is and and what conversion means. And, um, you know, you, you pray a prayer so you don't go to hell. And I think once you've been in a relationship with people who have survived hell, you kind of start to rethink, uh, again, all those easy answers you have about a God who who lets that happen. And so for me, I think the title Assimilate or Go Home is really, yeah, a portrayal of how I feel um, 
my evangelical community approached missions. And it really comes from this place of, um, I think, American exceptionalism and um, just a general sense of uh, supremacy and superiority. And those are things, in order to be like Christ, I need to root out those values out of my life as much as possible. And so for me, that has looked like failure. I have not converted anybody (laughs) to be an evangelical Christian at this point in my life. Um, And I don't say that lightly because it's so hard. I think Jesus is a liberating presence who reveals to us a God who actually loves us. Mm -hmm. And one thing being in relationship with Muslims has shown me is how there are some similarities, right? Between some of these great world religions. Um, And one of the similarities is um, a lot of us don't really think God likes us. And so we're working real hard, you know, to get Mm. God to love us. And I really struggle with that. I see some of that in Islam. I see a lot of that in Christianity. And so just thinking like Jesus really is the good news in that capacity. So like, what? sorry, I'm going to do a little sermon, right? So when Jesus appears on the scene in the gospels and he's going around preaching the gospel, preaching the good news, um, what was he saying? Like everybody believed in God. You know, there's no atheists running around. They're all like very religious Jews, right? Uh And so he's like bringing the good news and, what was that? And I think it's just simply that God loves you. I truly think it's that. And so I need to hear that good news constantly. I, my Muslim neighbors and friends need to hear that constantly. My neighbors who are, you know, encased in racism out here, like they need that good news too. And so, um, yeah, I don't know if that answered your question. So I'm still evangelistic, but I think I'm more aware of how much I need that good news constantly in my own mm. life as well. Right. Mm. I remember a, a couple of years ago, oh, kind of being convicted with the fact that realizing that I was a Pharisee and that the churches we know it, you know, like really most evangelical churches or even just most Christian churches in America, like we fit in that Pharisee category. And I remember growing up like, no, the Pharisees are, they're the bad people, you know, out in the world. And, you know, we're, we're the ones who are saved. Um, but realizing that this, that just the social constructs that come with church and with Christianity, Mm -hmm. um, it, it puts this, this heavy yoke, this burden. And even on you, you know, mm-hmm. as a kid, you wanted to, to please God. Like, Hey, yeah. God's called me yeah. to be a missionary. I'm going to go and do, do that work so that I can earn favor with him. Um, and we, and we know that we're saved through grace and it's nothing that mm-hmm. we do, but there's still something so heavy there that is this pull and it's cultural and it's a worldview that yeah. you just can't, you can't just wake up one day and be done with it. You know, like it's still, it's just ingrained in us. It's this pull towards that, um, but yeah, then it becomes, a, I think a lifetime of, of trying to undo that and come back to that, the simple reality that yeah, God loves you, that God, God wants you to be a part of his family. Yeah. Um, in your book, which by the way, made me cry, uh, twice cause I read it twice. Um, <laughs> there, what what I just found so uh, so interesting, so fascinating, and um, and uh, hit hit me a lot. I think was the um, the not just the difficulties of working among um, these refugees and and uh, coming alongside them, but uh, a lot of the, a lot of the times where, uh, I guess disappointments maybe mm-hmm. would would be the the word the the story that I um, just always sticks in my mind is uh, when you you kept talking to these um, uh, young girls trying to get them. Mm-hmm. Uh, a, a nice life plan mm. and what they wanted was to get married and have a nice wedding and and um, I hope I'm remembering this story right and y- you tell a 
you tell a story of a girl who um, who you you'd been working with and uh, you had said so you're you're gonna go to you're gonna go to college you're gonna mm-hmm. you're gonna do all these things and then um, and she said yeah yeah I think so and then you talked to her sisters and they were like yeah, yeah she's she just told you that mm-hmm. those mm-hmm. are just what what she wanted to say and then you found out about the guy she met and how she wanted to get married and you got stuck in your words uh agreeing to bake the damn cake mm-hmm. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> for the wedding I made a huge wedding cake R- right yeah <laughs> first of all how hard is it to bake a wedding cake because i imagine in a small oven is really hard actually. <laughs> and it- mine was really lopsided because of that is that right yeah because it was like smashed it and like tilted Anyways, oh gosh yeah that's gotta be that's gotta be so rough. Yeah. Um we there was someone I went to school with who she bakes cakes professionally and oh. at one point was making such an extravagant cake that she went up and down our places and secured all of our ovens to make different parts of a cake because it was such a tiered anyway, that has nothing to do wow. with anything, but it was wow. like I learned something that day. <laughs> um but Tell us about what it's like to um, to have like a goal in mind for other people mm-hmm. and trying to is I don't know if it's fair to say impose your will on them or mm-hmm. or at least want something for them and have them not want that at all and you having to learn to be okay with that like what's yeah what's that like Well, I mean, you guys are both. <laughs> Pastors, I wonder, you know, if you've experienced that too. But I, I remember, I, I, right? Yeah. I got some stories, <laughs> right? And for me, it is a little bit in, ingrained into my, uh, you know, issues with having a savior complex, right? Yeah. I know more than you. I can see what the good choice would be. I hope you take it. And um, I remember when we were living in Minneapolis, we were with a, a mission organization that, like, lived and worked among poor communities in the U.S. and other parts of the world. And so we had these team leaders who'd been doing this in inner city Minneapolis for, you know, 20 plus years. And I was like, you know, doing my thing, trying to be a good neighbor, made cookies for everybody. I was like going around to doors and like knocking on them is super rundown apartment complex, which used to be called the pit. And, um, this person like opened the door a crack and then we're like, no, I don't know. Thanks. I don't want them to just like slam the door in my face. And I was like venting to this woman, this team leader about it. And she was just like, you should be grateful for an authentic response. Mm. And I think that's never left me again, going back to like, what is it that Jesus actually came to tell us Mm. that God loves us? What is the chief goal of our life is to actually be in relationship with God. So for me, I want to actually be in relationship with people, which means I need to accept them as they are and create spaces where we can actually be honest with each other, even if it's not what I want to hear. And so that's something I try and keep in mind when I have like less than stellar interactions or people say things to me that I don't like, or we get stuck in these messy situations. I still think about that all the time. Like at least they're being honest. Like honesty is a gift. It's a precious gift. And so um, I'm now at the, I'm still in relationship with the girls I write about in my book a lot and things have gotten way messier (laughs) and way chaotic and complicated as, as it gets when you are in relationship with people who have so much trauma. Um, but I'm still so grateful that we can be really honest. Like we're still honest and we still talk. And so it's, it's a gift to me. Right. That's so good. Um, do, how do you do now with the savior complex? Is it still like, <laughs> are, are you still trying to impose your will at times or, or oh. is, is that something uh, God works on you on a daily basis. Yeah. Okay. So there's, you want me to be really honest? Uh, of course. It, you you be just as, talked about be as honest as you want this. <laughs> I, I don't Should want I give you the gift of my honest. <laughs> I would, I, I would love that. I'm a, I'm a very social person. I, I kind of like to spill my guts with people okay. and I like when other people okay. do, but this right. is going to be on the internet. Right. So, well, I think I've said this, I've said this before, but I just, I've sort of just uh, shifted my focus, right? So before I was a missionary to Muslim refugees and now I'm a 
a missionary to white evangelicals. And so I still have some unhealthy things within me with my writing, particularly thinking I can change people and do good and get results or, you know, be successful. And yeah, there's just no way that's ever going to happen. And it's something that can be really hard when you're sort of in the publishing world, which, you know, needs success in order to sell books and stuff like that. So that's been kind of tricky. I will say in my actual life, um, we have made some pretty intentional choices um, just to take hierarchy out of the equation uh, with a lot of our relationships. And uh, like when we moved back to Portland, we just had this rule that um, we're just going to live in these apartments with refugees and we're not going to do anything for a year, right? Like if we're white and we're new, just lay low, get the lay of the land, talk to people. Cause I mean, there's nonprofits out here and stuff that are like, we're saving the neighborhood and you know, whatever. And we're like, okay, like if we've heard of you after a year, like if our neighbors tell us you're cool, then we'll talk, but we're going to take a year. And um, so stuff like that has really helped just for us to come in as um, neighbors. And that really helps with the whole savior complex. Like my friends could care less that I write or do whatever. And you know, it's just, it's kind of awesome. That's great. Yeah, that's great. And it's, I mean, it's so much healthier. There's, um, there's a lot of communities. I mean, I'm, I'm in the lower income part of St. John's right now. And, uh, groups will come in and then they'll leave and they'll come like you see kind of a rotating list of people who want to come help Mm -hmm. and i have to imagine that trust goes down (laughs) when you have a a rotating list of people coming in to uh save your crappy community i get you know on their end that's their thinking uh so i think coming in and not doing anything is probably the best way anyway the most effective way anyway even if that's not your thinking i mean trust is trust is something that does not come quick yeah. And I think it's been really fascinating. Like I actually did. I, so I sort of broke the rule because I have a master's in teaching English to speakers of other languages. So I did start an English class like six months into it, but just real casual at our apartment complex. And um, I'm still, I do community English class out here and it's been an awesome way to meet people. But uh, so our local school, I sent my daughter to it. Um, it's the one where all the people from the apartment complex we were living at go that's why we bought this house because it's in the district. Our house is on the walk to school from all the low-income apartment complexes. So everybody has to see me every day. I'm such a busy body and we walk to school with them. And it's like the second lowest rated school in all of Oregon, mm. not just Portland, all of Oregon. And, um, you know, there's some reasons for that. A lot of it is like language ability and test scores and just, um, you know, a history of historic disinvestment. And so a few weeks ago, a, a big church did like adopt our school and came and painted it and did all this yard work and all this stuff. And it was really cool. Um, at the same time, it was like very jarring, right? To yeah. have seen all these, like the most white people I've seen forever yeah. at the school. I mean, there's white people in the neighborhood. They do not send their kids to school, right? Uh, nobody I know that's white really does that. Um, but they all had these like Love Rockwood hats on and like a huge Love Rockwood banner and Again, I was really grateful like that they were doing all this awesome stuff. And at the same time, I was like, if you love it so much, <laughs> why you live here? Right? <laughs> why don't you send your kid to school here? You know, and that's really where I'm at with everything, which kind of sucks. Okay. So I got to interject <laughs> there because um, I think that was probably around like the, the citywide season of service. Yeah. It which, wasn't okay. a part of Love Portland, but it was yeah, like they did so their own thing. Here's the history behind that, oh. I think. And it was... I think 10-ish years ago, maybe a little bit more, maybe 15, um, Roosevelt in St. John's, which is the oh, high school, yeah, yeah. they were the recipient of of that. And it was right around the, the big Luis Fl- yeah, uh, Palau yeah. Festival. And like, hey, we want to love Portland. How are we going to do this? And, uh, and so that's what they did. And Roosevelt was, you know, one of if not the kind of worst school in the Portland area yeah. for the high school. 
um, just happens to kind of be my alma mater too. <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and so that's what they, they did. They started yeah. right, you know, in David and I's neighborhood and it was everybody from the burbs coming in and like a thousand people yeah. showed up to, you know, to spruce up Roosevelt. Um, and it started some really, re- really amazing partnerships, you know, and the whole school church partnership um, that Portland has, oh, I, it is done really well with. And it's been a, definitely a great opportunity to, I think show love to to the to the to the, the principals to the schools. Mm-hmm. Um, that really all started out of that. But I I remember being a resident of St. John's and you know saying like, hey, that was my school, and all these other people who went to the schools in the suburban areas that I remember growing up, like, oh yeah, you rich white kids, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> like they're coming to save our mm-hmm. our little town and. I remember you calling it a Mexico mission yeah, yeah. trip. So St. John's. That's and what you R- call Rock- it? Uh, yeah, we, we were the Mexico for you know, the suburbs. Um, and God, for me, like God really had to kind of humble me in that to be able to accept that. And over the years, I've like, I've recognized and I've, I, I, I still don't love the suburbs. Um, and it's, uh, it's a different life, but. But God has said, you know, like, I love them too. And they're living out their calling as best they can to it. And that's okay. It's okay, you know, for me and my neighborhood to be the Mexico, you know, for, for the suburbs. And, and God has challenged me in that to say, hey, you know, how can we, how can we partner, you know, you know, better in that where, you know, like you, Mm -hmm. there's God calls some people to say, Hey, we are going Mm -hmm. to send our kid to this school. We're going to be active here. We're going to love our community as a result of that. Mm -hmm. Then there are other families who's like, no, I I can't do that, but I'll show up on a Saturday, you know, to help spruce up the Mm -hmm. school, you know? Um, And so how can we leverage those relationships? How can we, you know, better be in contact with one another um, to just to make the world better I think all around yeah I think that this is a question I get asked a lot so uh you know churches will say can you come and talk to us about how to love your refugee neighbor in Portland right and I'm sort of a Debbie Downer because people do like to help and be involved in ways that are easy right right, for them and that fit into a way that also supports the narrative that they are doing good and yeah um but in an easy accessible schedule way um and that's just not how human relationships actually work, you know? And so like it's school buildings, that's one thing, but like actual relationships, that's just not how any of us operate. And so I just say like, you know, people really want to give clothes and shoes and all that's like fine. But what refugees really need are friends and they need really good neighbors. And so what's kind of hard is, and it's kind of paralyzing to people, but asking people to look at how possibly segregated their lives are and, you know, Portland's really similar to a lot of cities, which is it's actually super segregated by class and race. And, um, you know, I know this can be like hard for people to hear. And so I just try and say like, I know lots of people doing really creative things, no matter what neighborhood they're in, there is creative ways to think through how can I start to see where I can be in relationship with diverse people. So, but you got to start assessing some of it, right? Like where you grocery shop, where you go to church, where you send your kids to school. Like if it's all the same types of people, like we do have a problem. And I actually think it's a historic problem based off of, um, community, like white communities in particular trying to hoard resources. And so for me, it actually Mm. does go back to a bigger issue. So like I also, (laughs) yeah. So it's hard for me because I don't feel called to refugee ministry. I honestly don't. And so sometimes people tell me like, I wish I could do what you do, but I just can't. And I just think this is just my life. And I, I love my life. My life is awesome or else I would not do this. Trust yeah. me. Like I find so much joy, but it's, so I think what is the bigger call? The, I think the biblical call is to seek the flourishing of your entire neighborhood and your yeah. entire community. Yeah. Right. And so we all have that call And I think we actually do need to do a little bit of strategic overhaul in order to see that coming to fruition, just based on how segregated our lives have become. Right. But that's my intense opinion. (laughs) And you can disagree. No, no, that's great. Uh, So, 
So what would be uh, some steps then that, um, or, or some things that people could look for? Cause I think that's the first step is noticing yeah. your inherent racism or whatever. Uh, like what, what are some things that um, we may need to think through? Yeah, I think just looking through all those circles of your life, you know, are they all in exactly the same communities of people? Is there some variance? Are there some ways you can um, start to put yourself in a position where you would be a minority? Uh, you know, you would be outside of your normal bubble. Like I have this friend and I thought she was just so cool. She um, worked at Portland Rescue Mission for a long time. And so she just was really super comfortable around people experiencing homelessness and she um, had kids and so couldn't work anymore. And she would like travel to not the library that was closest to her house, but one that was farther away because she knew there was more uh, people experiencing homelessness who hung out there. And she just thought, I have super cute kids. I bet they could be bring some joy to them and we could just hang out. And so even that, I'm like, that's such a small thing, but the intentionality behind it, it's like, I'm not just going to go to the easy library where it's all mom's just like me there. I'm going to go a little bit further to this one to be in relationship. I was like, sure. that's awesome. That's it's, great. You know? I think of the story of a rich man who came to Jesus and said, Hey, what do I got to do? Mm-hmm. And Jesus said, you need to sell everything you have and give to the poor and follow me. And he went away sad because he couldn't do that. And the reality of what we're asking people to do is, is that like sell your house and go live with the people. Like like go, (laughs) except don't gentrify it. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Um, Well, that was, there's a story with um, David Brewer, who was a guest that we had on a little while ago. He sold his house for less than he could have because Mm. he didn't want to be part of the problem. Um, and so there's oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It scratches your head. The realtors were coming to him like, wait, are you sure you want to do this? He's like, yes, because mm. I have, there's a higher call than, you know, to make money and, and the bottom dollar. Um, I love that. So, but it, that's really, that's really, really, really hard to do. Mm-hmm. And I think for many of us, maybe even impossible. Um, I think, uh, Oh, um, Henry Nowen, mm-hmm. who sacrificed a ton, um, but even even him, he at the you know towards the end of his life, he's like, I, I have a call to to the poor in South America, and he did that. He kind of sold everything he had and um, and cut the ties that he did, and he went down there and he lived and ministered down there for I think it was just about a year before he realized that he actually liked hot showers too much. And that's exactly (laughs) what he said. He goes, I had to come back home because like it was, I I couldn't get peace and quiet once in a while, you know, Mm -hmm. like the, the homes, just Mm -hmm. the way life was, it was just too chaotic and it just drove me kind of crazy. Mm -hmm. And so even Henry Nowen, who for me is just somebody who sacrificed so much, um, you know, even him, he couldn't live amongst the poorest of poor. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think, I, don't know, I, I think there's the reality of many of us walking away sad because we we actually can't do that. Um, but there are I, there definitely are steps that we can. You know, like yeah. where do we where do we send our kids to school? Where do we shop? Um, just having some intentionality about that. All right. Um, talk to us if if you're willing. <laughs> Uh, you said you consider yourself a missionary to white evangelicals mm-hmm. right now. Mm-hmm. And I think I know some of what you're going to say and I'm with you. Um, but what, what is that like in 2018 mm-hmm. in America? What's it like to be a missionary to white evangelicals? Yeah, it's, you know, you guys are pastors. Yeah. I, don't need to, I don't need to tell you. So... <laughs> You know, what limited speaking engagements I do, uh, you know, the past two years, nearly every time there's been a and I have been accosted by very angry, uh, usually white men, you know, uh, very upset with something I've said, which is so fascinating. Just, I'm just talking about refugees, which has become this intensely political issue, which is really sad. Um, mm-hmm. But I think I just really 
am trying to get to this place of, um, you know, coming to terms with my own story and through relationship with refugees, just really starting to understand um, how strong the values of the American dream are in my own life and in the Mm -hmm. lives of many, many people I love. And so what I now, instead of being like, I got to convert you and show you how terrible it is and be like me, which is a terrible way to live. um, I am just trying to say in my own life, I am trying to pay attention to inequality in the United States. Mm-hmm, and right. it is there if you start to look at it. I mean, it's very evident in my neighborhood. I bet you, you can find some of that in your own neighborhood. And I really am starting to pay attention um, to these specific values that I kind of, I kind of fixated on these values after looking at um, Luke 4, where Jesus announces his ministry and he's reading from Isaiah, like this uh kind of a mix up of two passages from Isaiah about who he came for, right? The spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's given, anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to set at liberty um, the captives, to heal the blind and um, to set free those who are oppressed, right? So those four groups. And I was just like, what are the opposite of those groups? And I just kind of came up with it's um, the opposite of poor would be the affluent, you know, the opposite of, um, those who have been captives is liberty, freedom, autonomy, right? The opposite of the blind, I was sort of thinking like safety and wellness. And then the opposite of those who've been oppressed would be those who are the oppressors and in power. And so just thinking through those values, I was like, oh my gosh, these are intensely strong in my own life. Like to the point it takes everything within me sometimes to resist um, moving in a direction towards those values, even though I know that if I, a person of privilege, pursue that, it could end up being worse for my neighbors. Um, So like for me, schools are like a perfect example of this, right? We do have freedom of education in the United States. Every parent is free, you know, to educate their children within reason. Um, And so that's a real privilege we have and we can choose it. And yet we can see what's happened like Portland, you know, um, what happens when people with means opt out of the yeah. public education system? Sure. What happens? There are schools, there are communities that are completely disinvested in. And it's hurt, It's hurting kids. Yeah. And those kids are God's kids, you know? Like, they are. And so I just want to say I, I acknowledge that freedom and autonomy is a really strong value. And I'm just asking us to look at what happens when we choose that. And so everybody loves to talk about intent. And I, I want to talk a little bit about impact, I think, with for myself and then with other people. Sure. Sorry, that got a little preachy. No, that's great. That's great. I, I like you getting preachy. It's good. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, it's great. Um, and I think what, what you do so well, clearly you're pissing off some people and that's fine. You know, you're gonna, it's gonna happen. Uh, but... I think when you bring the personal story to it, um, yeah. it it breaks down some of those barriers. You're not just coming in guns blazing saying uh, you are not being Jesus. You should be um, X, Y, Z. You're taking us through your change of heart, change of mind, and what's um, happening in your life. And I think that's a lot more powerful. Yeah, the the relationship component is is huge. I remember a conversation I had years and years ago um, with a gentleman who lives in the Northwest but was from West Virginia and just really entrenched in that culture. Um, And he was telling me about immigration specifically. And he said, you know, we we can have our political ideals... But he said, when my neighbors are here illegally and I, I love them and they're real people, he says, it all of a sudden becomes a real different issue, mm-hmm. you know, and it becomes a real problem. And, um, and, and that's, I think with any political issue, it's easy for us to get fired up over political issues, you know, and we're so, uh, we're so dualistic, you know, like yeah. you're, you're, it's black and white. It's gotta be one thing or another, um, but the reality is when you actually sit down with an individual, you know, who's affected by, you know, any of these policies, um, it becomes a completely different issue. It becomes a real issue. Um, yeah. And it's, 
it's convicting. And so I think, you know, it, there's a call for us to, to really a- engage in those relationships. Um, yeah, just across the board. I think, you know, refugees, I think of, you know, my, minorities mm-hmm. and um, people who look and think different than, than we do. Um, people of different economic scale. I think that, you know, the, the houseless or the homeless, like, oh, okay, we've yeah. got all these policies and you're know, like, wait, do you have any homeless friends? Right. You know, like where you, <laughs> right. then it becomes completely different. Like, yeah. oh, these are people that God loves them just the same. Um, yeah. Do you guys know Brian Stevenson? He uh, wrote the book, Just Mercy, and he did the Equal Justice Initiative and the Memorial and Monument to Lynching. Um, anyways, he's this amazing yeah. guy. And he always talks about um, proximity to people, right? Will change the world. But it's not just proximity. It's when you actually enter into suffering with them. Because yeah. that's something interesting I found is proximity alone doesn't always do it right. My neighborhood is a perfect example for you can live side by side. You can go to school with someone and still hate them. Right. You can even have like a friendly relationship and still um, vote for a policy that would, would deport them. And um, it's that extra key. I think the Christ like key of what did Jesus do? He was constantly entering into suffering with people Mm -hmm. and doing what he could to alleviate that. That's what Jesus did. And I think that is this call. We as Christ followers, can have in our lives. It's not enough just to exist side by side. Can we actually start to enter into suffering? And I think you're right. It's not just refugees, but like people who are elderly and experiencing loneliness, people who are sick and isolated, right? Like there's so many, there's so many ways Jesus models finding these people on the margins. And there's so many different communities. There's very lonely people in the suburbs, right? There's, there's people that are suffering in the suburbs too. And so I think keeping that extra component in mind is Mm. it's, it really can get hard. As you again, you guys are pastors, you know, being invited into other people's sufferings can be so hard. But right. that I think is what changes you. Yeah, absolutely. And it is draining and yeah. it is um it is overwhelming at times. And um at least for me, it keeps me up most nights. But yeah, like you when you really get into relationship and when you really, um, when people's sufferings really start to affect you, I Mm -hmm. mean, like, uh, that's when, at least for me, and I, I hate to put it in these terms, but, uh, people become less of a, um, project for me to fix or a, or a problem mm-hmm. and, and more of a, um, a person with depths and hurts. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, I, I hate to put it that way because it makes me feel like crap about myself. But Okay. Uh, can I ask a question no, for both of you? Please do. So I'm assuming you guys have been in situations like that where you're sitting with someone who's suffering. Yeah. Like how have you experienced God in that situation? Yeah. Um, Sorry, this is no, a no. Please do, please do. Um, I there's man. There was there was one time Wait, we're supposed to be the ones asking the questions. That- That's not how this works. <laughs> That's not how this works. This is free form, man. Um, no, I remember there was one time. So it was it was nine fifty five on a Tuesday, and we have staff meeting at ten. Um, there's uh, a guy outside, um, a uh, homeless guy. He's, he's like fixing his bike and got all of his crap in the alley at our church. And, and the alley, ha, you know, is pretty notorious for, um, people sleeping back there because it's hidden. And that's, that's fine. Like the, um, the compassion part of me is always like, um, people just need a place to sleep. But then there's this other side of me that sometimes comes out where, um, man, I feel like a monster saying this, uh, just feels like a nuisance or a problem, you know, like the, I know, I know people are going to complain. Neighbors are going to complain. So, Mm -hmm. 
Uh, so I need to shut this down. And when staff meeting is about to start and I see this out my window, I think, okay, I'm just gonna, gonna tell this guy to leave. I go out there and I start talking to him. I said, um, like, Hey, what's, uh, what's going on, man? And he says, I'm going to throw myself off the bridge. Mm-hmm. The St. John's bridge is enormous and, uh, notorious for, suicides and um because his his bike tire wouldn't pump up and i i still wanted to just get this thing fixed quickly because i'm still focused on my own my own crap um and he uh, he said, "No, I'm I'm gonna throw myself off the bridge. Everything's falling apart in my life, and um, so I just sort of in a haste write the other staff and I say, okay, we're like, I'm not gonna be there for a while, um, and I I get some coffee and get him some coffee and sit down with him, and um, the guy starts." Uh, telling me about his life, talking about his um, life and how he got into drugs and his family disowned him and, um, and how he's sort of had to have it out, like um, get in fights with people to get a place to sleep because the places that there are to sleep are few and far between. Mm-hmm. And so he's had a bunch of fist fights about it. And, um, through the uh, a few minutes into the conversation I rarely I'm a pretty skeptical person so I rarely am like mm-hmm. God said this to me because mm-hmm. I, I you know I sometimes wonder if this is just my own but I felt this strong sense of um don't forget like why you're here and what you're supposed to be doing. Not as a pastor, just as a person. And, um, and I realized kind of what, what my focus was and what my focus should have been. This was one day. And, um, and so I, you know, kept talking with him for about an hour, tried to fix his bike. I couldn't fix his bike at all. Like, I don't know how to <laughs> fix bikes. <laughs> I tried. <laughs> Failed miserably, but um, he kept coming back. And, um, and he was there pretty repeatedly for about two weeks. And... Um, And then this other guy started showing up and he was there pretty repeatedly. And I think, I don't know if your, your question was, where did I see God or how did I see God? Mm -hmm. Was that kind of the question? Um, I at least think, um, what I was reminded in that time was that um, these are three-dimensional people with um, with a history and a past and a future, and um, mm-hmm. and that I'm not doing them charity by being with them. Mm-hmm. I'm to be with them because yeah, that's what I should be doing. Yeah. And I kind of get that reminder, not just with um, uh, houseless people, but with uh, all kinds of, we have uh, a couple of uh, LGBTQ folks at the church and um, hearing their stories about, um, about like how they how they see God while also being um, 
rejected by family or, mm-hmm. um, or like come out pretty strongly by, by other, I, I can't really say well-meaning Christians, Christians, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, it, I see just so much um, of the love that God has for them and so much reminder that um, coming alongside them means taking some of the beating that they're getting, mm. you know, in, in, in small ways, in very, 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 very small ways. But like some of those rocks that they're getting hit with. Yeah are going to hit me too. Yeah. Um, I don't know if that really answers your question. Yeah. Those are just two that came to mind. Mm. For me, uh, an experience I had recently um, is with a guy who was having a, a hard day and just a rough time. And he, he didn't have any money. And after being with him for about an hour or two, he just, he like, he asked me, he's like, hey, did, do you have any cash that I can have, you know, and, um, somebody I'm in relationship with? And I opened my wallet. I had, there was $30. I never carry cash, but I had $30 in there. Like, here you go. I've, I've given people money before, but there was something, something that, like, God's presence was pretty, pretty felt in that moment. I, it wasn't $30 to change him. Like it, it, it had in my mind, it had a little impact, but he, he started to cry and gave me a huge hug. And there was something in that, in that moment that I forever now is it will be impressed on, mm. you know, in, in my life and my heart. Um, we're just feeling there's a, a mutual love because it was done in relationship, it wasn't just somebody random. Um, and then there was no strings attached to it, you know, and there was a dignity that I somehow gave him that, mm. or that he felt that he received in that. Um, and yeah, it's, it's hard to put a finger on it, you know, because again, it's not like that saved him from, you know, from his, his, the, life situations that um that he found himself in but it was just something something little in that i think something we we struggle with and i david i know i know you struggle with this a lot we've had lots of conversations and um maybe we can kind of just close our time with this thought um but it's related to hope because in those in those times like it becomes very it's easy for us to lose hope in that. And I just recently mm-hmm. watched the Mr. Rogers documentary. So good. Yeah. So yeah. good, right? So good. And oh the, man. The thing that's, that struck me is, you know, towards the end of his life, when he was asked to come back in that segment after nine yeah. 11 happened, yeah. you know, and just to, to look at his countenance, like he had no hope in that moment. Mm-hmm. It was like, I, I I've labored my entire life. Mm-hmm. And the world is not any better off for it. You know, that was what he was feeling. That was the discouragement that was just evident in his countenance, at least to me. Um, and, you know, I've, I've been there. And, David, you know, I, I know you've been there. And, Danielle, I, like, I'm, I'm sure you've you felt. You said something that um, one of your quotes, it says, life became more beautiful and terrible than we've ever been told. Mm-hmm. So there's there's a beauty there, but mm-hmm. then there's a terribleness. Mm-hmm. There's a stark mm-hmm. reality like, ah, this super sucks. And it's mm-hmm. easy to get down mm-hmm. and and lose hopeless, like lose hope, become yeah. completely hopeless. And so how do we, I don't know, how do we continue that, maintain that hope in, how do we continue that that beauty in the stark reality of, terribleness the evil that continues to exist in our world yeah i think one thing i've been thinking about a lot is going back to what is the gospel what is the good news and i think growing up just such i had such an individualistic view Mm -hmm. of it right god's gonna save me (laughs) from hell 
great. That's awesome. That sounds awesome. Um, but now I just think it's so much bigger than that. And Jesus's actual life matters a lot Mm -hmm. as does his work on the cross. And what did he come to do? He came to defeat evil. That is awesome. Mm -hmm. That fills me with so much hope. Jesus said his church is going to be built at the gates of hell and there is hell on earth. And this is something I wrote in my book. You know, I made all these cakes for people. I make fun, funny cakes for people all the time. People in like really horrible situations. One of the situations that really gets me is, is uh, domestic violence situations that people don't uh, tend to leave, you know, for very, very long times. And so feeling the futility of being in a relationship with people, um, in these situations, baking them cakes. What's the point? What's the, you know? Yeah. And I just really having this sense that Jesus is there. Jesus is with mm. people living in hell on earth. And he wants us to run as fast as we can to those places. And I just feel like he told me, and, and bring cake <laughs> when you go, you know? <laughs> and bring cake. And bring cake. Um, so it's still really, really hard. But having such a bigger picture of the gospel, it's not about saving me and my family. It's not about me and my family being safe. Um, It's about Jesus is doing the work of defeating evil. And he is asking us to be a part of that. Hmm. That's kind of awesome. That's awesome. That's amazing. Um, Yeah. I I think not to, not to get way too uh, vulnerable or whatever, um, but I've lately had a lot of moments where I think like, where's God at all? You know, (laughs) you can, you can only, you can only see so much before you think, okay, that's a legitimate response. I hate it though. (laughs) (laughs) You know, um, and it's, uh, it's one of those things like I, I've got, I've got a degree from a Bible college. I've got a master of divinity. I, I could, I could give just a, an amazing theology of suffering and, (laughs) and yet Hmm. when you just see it over and over and over. Yeah. How does that theology work? It doesn't, (laughs) it doesn't work after you have to, um, you have to go forward again and have like a moment of silence for yet another freaking mass shooting Mm -hmm. or another hurricane or another tornado, or you, you hear about another, a kid getting disowned by his family or you hear about mm. um so like another suicide or another um uh another miscarriage it's hard to it's hard to say well you know god's god's still in this place cuz you kind of also have the thought of okay great where mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> But um, but when when you see uh, when you see ways in which God through His church through His people is um, is bringing uh, heaven and earth together, when you're seeing um, when you're seeing God fighting evil in ways, when you're seeing um, that that kid who's been disowned by his family finding finding hope in Jesus. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, I think maybe that's maybe that's my answer to your question. Maybe that's where I see God. Mm-hmm. Um, I love that. I think the faith of people who have experienced oppression is yeah, right. it sustains us, right? Yeah. 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 And and you don't see that if you just come in in a Mexico mission trip kind of way. Right. You, yeah, we have that mentality. Like, we have to save people. We have to assimilate them to make them, in, like, to become like us. We have the answer. Um, but instead, suffering, suffering with people. Teaches you about God in a way that Bible college or seminary won't do it. Yeah. Well, you know? I mean, it goes it back to your podcast title. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think seminary once... I, I didn't learn that in my Bible college. Yeah. This is how you experience God in the world. Right. right? <laughs> I don't, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, we had one professor who I feel like was kind of on the outs with some of the other faculty because he was uh, he was a missionary for years and he um, 
he sort of had a had a tough mentality about it. I, you know, he was he was sort of burned by the whole experience mm-hmm. after like 20, 25 years doing it. And he started saying like, maybe don't go be a missionary and just uh, send money and support that way or something. <laughs> That's awesome. um, so he, uh, he would be the one, but otherwise, no, you don't, uh, yeah. you don't hear much of that in Bible college. So, hmm. yeah, he was, um, he was an interesting character. Um, well, where can people find you online? I'm way too active on Twitter. Yeah. So I love it. Follow <laughs> at your risk. Um, yeah, I'm just on there as DL Mayfield. I do have a website. I blog occasionally and, um, yeah, I'm working on a second book. So you are, yeah. News about that should be out soon. Wonderful. So, I know. I'm super excited. You uh, heard it here. Yeah. So your book is called assimilate or go home. Um, it's wonderful. I cannot recommend it enough. I love it so much. Um, and thanks so much for being on our podcast. Thanks for coming out to my neck of the woods. Yeah, yeah it's wonderful. Um, I've been meaning to come out here. I have a, um, a relatively new friend who has a church in Rockwood. I know Rockwood's big, but yeah. um, I've been meaning to come see him. We've got a, a coffee date soon. So awesome. that'll be fun. Cool. Well, for the On Success Podcast, I'm David. And I'm Josh. And we will see you next time. Thanks so much. That got deep. Yeah, it kind of does. Um, we, like I said, we, we have generally.